leading worship. Just to take a leaf out of um, Al's book, that's no comment on the other worship leaders. Okay? <laughs> but it's really good to have you with us. Great. Well, today we're continuing exploring the book of Psalms as part of our summer Psalms series. Don't try and say that if you've got false teeth. <laughs> summer Psalms series. Okay. The 150 Psalms, which comprise the book of Psalms, of course, consists of many different types of Psalms, including Psalms of praise and thanksgivings, Psalms of celebration written for specific celebratory occasions, processional Psalms, Psalms of enthronement declaring the sovereign rule of God, Psalms calling for the judgment of God's enemies. Songs and prayers of lament, psalms of remembrance, psalms of confidence in God, psalms, pilgrimage psalms, wisdom psalms, and messianic and prophetic psalms. And two weeks ago, Tom spoke on Psalm 1. And today we're going to look at, surprise, surprise, Psalm 2, which some consider to be the second part of a two-part introduction to the book of Psalms. And whilst it's true, the theme of Psalm 1, that there are two ways in this life, the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous, whilst that does continue in Psalm 2, and indeed the last verse of Psalm 1 could be a linking verse, in some ways the two Psalms are quite different. And so we're going to consider Psalm 2 today separately. The author of Psalm 2 is not stated in the book of Psalms, but in a prayer meeting of the early church, recorded in Acts chapter 4, when some of Psalm 2 is quoted, the psalm is clearly attributed to David. And some commentators believe that it was composed for use at the coronation of kings in the line of David. But of greater significance is that this psalm is quoted and applied to Christ as the great son of David, as God's anointed Messiah King at least five times in the New Testament, which makes it a messianic psalm pointing forward to the coronation of Jesus as King following his crucifixion, resurrection and ascension. So let's read Psalm 2 and we're going to read it from the NIV version. The word should come up for us. Great, thank you. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them with his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear 
and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. Whilst as a prophetic messianic psalm, it speaks of the Messiah's kingship and of his kingdom, I felt led to approach this particular message from the standpoint of how the psalmist highlights the futility of man, but also amazing the favor of God. And thus I've called today's message, Man's Futility and God's Favor. And we're going to consider the psalm in four sections, namely the rebellion of mankind, the response of God, the reign of God's king, and the refuge of the wise. Firstly then, the rebellion of mankind in verses 1 through to 3. In the ancient Middle East, the coronation of a king was often the occasion for the revolt of people and neighboring kings. But the psalmist point out that to rebel against the Lord's anointed king was actually to rebel against the one who anointed him, to rebel against God himself. Whilst the anointed one spoken of here in verse 2 almost certainly refers to a king of Israel, that king, however, can be regarded prophetically as a type of Christ, the anointed one to come, who, as Luke has recorded in Acts 10, 38, went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Why? Because he was anointed, not with oil, but with the power of the Holy Spirit. In speaking of how the nations rebel against the Lord, to paraphrase verses 1 and 2 of this psalm, the psalmist asks a rhetorical question. Why do the nations conspire against the Lord God and his anointed king? And the implication of what the author is saying is how dare they? They do it in vain. It's futile without any chance of success for God is God and ultimately in control of mankind's affairs. Nevertheless, as verse 3 points to, the desired of unsaved mankind is to break free from all restraint. But God, praise God, in his wisdom has given man restraining laws for us to live by for our good, such as do not murder. If in our fallen state mankind was entirely free from all laws to live as each person thinks, just think about it, we'd have anarchy, not true freedom. From the first three verses, it is not just kings and rulers of nations who rebel against God, wanting to throw off godly restraint, but the people of the nations who rebel against God and his laws. And I'm reminded, probably springs to your mind too, how Isaiah spoke in Isaiah 53, 6, of how we are all like foolish sheep who've gone astray. Before we become new creations in Christ, we each seek to live our own way. An unsaved person 
doesn't want anyone to rule over them. They want to live as they wish. You might remember at the time of the sham trial, because that's what it was of Jesus, the gathered crowd did not want Jesus, God's Messiah King, to rule over them. Their cry was to crucify Jesus and to release Barabbas, a notorious criminal. As expressed in Psalm 2, verse 2, in a very real way, in the events which led to the death of Jesus, the kings of the earth and the religious rulers would indeed band together against the Lord himself and against his anointed Messiah King. And so it seems to me that verse 2 is somewhat prophetic in nature. But what then is the response to such rebellion from God? Verses 4 and 5 reveal that God laughs at man's futility. Now we tend to associate laughter with joy. And indeed the Bible does tell us that in God's presence there is fullness of joy. However, laughter can also be one of ridicule. And verse 4 says the Lord scoffs. He scoffs at mankind's attempts to rebel against his rulership. Verse 5 speaks of God rebuking mankind in his anger. The New King James Version of that verse speaks of God's deep distress at man's rebellion for his will and plan for mankind has already been decided. It's settled. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church in Rome, chapter 4, verse 17, points out that God calls things which are not yet as though they were. He speaks of things yet to happen as though they are already done. Such is the power and dependability of what God says. He does not speak, sorry, he, yeah, he does not speak and then not act. He doesn't speak and then not act, I should say. Got it? If God has made a promise to you and it hasn't yet come to pass, don't let go of it. Because when he speaks, he follows it through. And when he speaks, it's settled. It's as good as done. And so in verse 6 of this psalm, it says that God the Father has spoken on this matter. He has said, I have, notice it's past tense, although it was yet to happen when the psalm was written. But God the Father says, I have, such is the dependability of his word, installed my king, Referring to Christ, the anointed one, I have installed him on Zion, my holy hill, that is on heaven's throne. The matter is settled, and of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end, Isaiah prophesied, because the zeal of the Lord will bring that about. Now, I don't want to diminish the severity of God's anger towards mankind for our arrogant rebellious behavior. But hear me, I don't believe that God's anger is uncontrolled like someone who might lose their temper because things are not going the way they wish. For David assures us in another psalm, in Psalm 103 verse 8, that God is slow to anger and abounding in mercy. And for those of us who are born again Christian believers 
we are the recipients of his mercy in that Jesus has become the propitiation for our sins. That's another one not to say if you've got false teeth. He's the propitiation for our sins. The Apostle John, in 1 John 2 and verse 2, New King James Version, says how that as believers, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Such is the grace and abounding mercy of God. And if there's anyone here this morning, you haven't yet uh, come to Jesus Christ and accept him as your saviour, he's become your propitiation too. And I'll explain what that means. In fact, you'll only find the word propitiation in versions of the Bible which are literal translations. Translations such as the New King James Version, New American Standard Bible where technical words have been left in the text rather than using more easily understood phrases which unfortunately sometimes actually lose the depth of meaning. The word translation as propitiation from the original Greek New Testament only appears in two places, in 1 John 2 verse 2 and 1 John 4 verse 10. Propitiation describes how Jesus, through his sacrificial death, appeased God's wrath against mankind's sin and made amends for our wrongdoing and guilt by Jesus making atonement for our sins and thereby reconciling us with God. Hallelujah. Dorothy and I grew up in the Salvation Army where we used to sing a song which expressed rather more simply what it meant for Christ to be our propitiation. We never knew the word in those days, but we sang the song. And it went like this. God's anger now is turned away. My sins are under the blood. My darkness he has changed today. My sins are under the blood. My sins are under his blood. My guilt is gone and my soul is free. My peace, my peace is made with God. The Lord has pardoned me. Propitiation. How blessed we are that Christ has become the propitiation for our sins. But hey, not just for ours, not just for mine, but for all of mankind if they avail themselves of that. Returning to the text of the psalm, verses 7 to 9 speak of the reign of God's king. In these verses, God's king proclaims what God the Father has decreed. You you need to look at the text very carefully. One minute is the Father speaking, the next minute is the Son speaking. The king proclaims what God the Father has decreed, that he is God's son and that his father's intention is to give him all the nations as his inheritance. In the words of verse 8, the ends of the earth will become his possession. God's decree is that the nations will become his son's inheritance, clearly speaking of Christ. It's a decree. A decree of the king is a firm decision. It's an official order issued by God the Father himself, which cannot therefore be changed. Notice, however, that the son has to ask his father to give him the nations as his inheritance. In John chapter 17, we have the record 
of what is often referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer, in which, if you look at it carefully, in effect, he makes that request of his Father when praying for believers of subsequent generations that through the church, the whole world will come to know that he was the Savior sent by God. And this request of Jesus to his Father involves a response from you and I. As citizens of God's kingdom, we have a part to play in bringing about the Father's decree. For to bring to fulfillment God the Father's decree, King Jesus has issued a royal commission to us to go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus, Matthew 28 records it, has been given all authority and he's commissioned his body on the earth, the church, to go on his behalf and make disciples of all nations. And so moving on, we come to the final section of this psalm, verses 10 through to 12, in which there is a warning to earthly rulers, but also the promise of a refuge for the wise. Because God has decreed these things, and they will thus definitely be accomplished. Then beginning in verse 10, there's an appeal to kings and rulers of the earth, to those in government and positions of influence, to be wise and serve God and his purposes in their God-given roles. They're urged to serve the Lord with fear, meaning with reverence and awe. And verse 12 also urges, kiss the Son of God, lest he be angry, and as a result, you perish. Now to kiss in this context, speaks of submission and worship. Submission to an Assyrian king, for example, was expressed by kissing his feet. Now, as I've explained when I've preached previously, the most common word in the New Testament for worship is the Greek word proskyneo, or something like that, which means more than just kneeling in homage at the feet of a king. The meaning of this Greek word contains the imagery of a lover kissing the king as an expression of her love and adoration. The literal translation of that Greek word is to approach someone to kiss them. If I'm going to approach my wife to kiss her, I don't charge in. Sometimes we charge in to worship. Do you know what I mean? I would approach her tenderly. To approach someone to kiss them. As I was preparing this message, two occasions were brought to mind when in the life of Jesus he was approached with a kiss. One will probably be familiar to you was in the Garden of Gethsemane. On the evening before he was crucified, when Jesus was kissed by Judas, this wasn't a kiss of affection, but a kiss of betrayal. However, I felt the Holy Spirit wants me to focus on another occasion when Jesus, God's Son, was kissed as an expression of love and adoration, which is the essence of true worship. In Luke 7, 
we learn about one of two recorded occasions, different recorded occasions, let me say, when Jesus was the guest at a dinner party. And I'm mindful that I've previously shared a message on the impact of sacrificial worship based on the other occasion recorded by Matthew, Mark and John. But I felt strongly impressed by the Holy Spirit over a period of weeks to minister today out of the Luke 7 occasion. And beginning from verse 36 in Luke chapter 7, it tells us how Jesus reclined on a couch, it would have been, in that culture. He, he, let's, let's just help you. They would have eaten off low tables and uh, he, would have, uh, he would have reclined like this with his feet out the back, but he wouldn't have had shoes on, of course. Because in those cultures, the first thing you do is take your shoes off. Like, by the way, all good Redeemerites do. <laughs> we learned that very quickly when we came to the church, that you take your shoes off at the door. Don't know why, but they got respecting one another's carpets. I'm losing the plot here. Help me, Holy Spirit. <laughs> or we could lose the moment. Please, Lord, forgive me. And so from, from beginning in Luke 7 from verse 36, Luke tells us how Jesus would have reclined with others at the table, as was their custom. And then during the meal, can you just comprehend this for a minute, an unnamed woman who we're told had lived a sinful life Seemingly, she learned that Jesus was in the house. And although it would seem she wasn't an invited guest, she entered the house carrying an alabaster jar of expensive perfume, and she moved towards Jesus and stood behind him weeping. Can, can, can you picture this for a moment? She barges in to a dinner party uninvited, and she goes straight for Jesus and stands behind. Can, can, you, can you get the scene? Can you imagine the desire of her heart to be your presence, not rushing away to cherish this moment here I would stay. That could have easily been her song. She was clearly in very close contact with Jesus as her tears wet his feet. And Luke tells us how she then proceeded to wipe the feet of Jesus with her hair and then kissed his feet and poured the expensive perfume on his feet. What a picture. I'd like to suggest to you, actually, it's a bit like a church service at its best. For the Bible says, when we come together, we are being built into a spiritual house. With Jesus, through the presence of his Holy Spirit, being the most honoured guest in the house. And together we feed on his word, spiritual food, which is far better than even the finest food at the best of dinner parties. 
And just as at this dinner party in Luke 7, if you care to read it when you go home, in this spiritual house of God, Redeemer Church, there are those who in the past have lived sinful lives. But you've discovered that when we gather together, Jesus is in the house. Do you get the parallel? It's most likely that this woman had previously heard of Jesus. Possibly she'd heard him preach. And seemingly in faith and repentance, she came to the house where the presence of Jesus was to express her love and gratitude in him, in the belief that she could be forgiven. In the belief, in the words of the song that we sang, that up from the ashes of her life, fresh hope could arise. And maybe, just maybe, there's someone here today who has similarly come to this house hoping that your worship will be received and that your past will be forgiven. Well, I want to tell you, you've come to the right place. For in the words of an old song, I believe in Jesus and I believe that he's here now, here with the power to heal and the grace to forgive. I can hear others do as well. Let me, however take a few more minutes to share a bit further concerning this particular occasion recorded by Luke in Luke 7. Because of the reclining posture of Jesus, just think about it. This woman must have knelt down at Jesus' feet to be able to wipe his feet. But there's more. She didn't wipe his feet with a towel which would have been the norm in that house, but she broke the cultural norm and let her hair down and wiped the feet of Jesus with her hair. Now, this is highly significant. For a woman in the Middle East culture would wear her hair pinned up in public. She would only let her hair down in private for her husband or her lover and never in a public setting in the presence of other people. And her actions, therefore, would have shocked everyone in the house as she let her hair down to wipe the feet of Jesus. But seemingly, she wasn't bothered by what others think. She was uninhibited in her expression of her emotions and she, as she showed Jesus her love, kissing his feet and then pouring the perfume on his feet. Some Bible commentators say the expensive perfume had probably been bought by her in the hope that in the future she would find a man, a husband. And that the perfume would then be broken open on the wedding night and she would have not just lavishly applied it to herself but she would have also perfumed the marital bed and the fragrance would have got onto her husband. May the fragrance of Jesus fill this place. Do you realize the fragrance of our worship, as it were, can rise up and get on the one we're betrothed to? It's possible, perfectly possible, that when anointing Jesus, this woman was laying down all her future hopes and plans at the feet of Jesus. What a picture! The words of Robin Mark's song could so easily have been hers, all of my ambitions, hopes and plans, 
I surrender this into your hands. Sometimes songs could take on a new meaning when we sing them, when we get into how what might have inspired the writing of them. Now Luke tells us that the perfume was in, in an alabaster jar. And commentators say it would have been a, a flask-like um, thank you, container, but with a longer neck. Thank you. And the neck had to be broken to pour out the perfume. Hmm. Oh, Shika. Sometimes it's in our brokenness that the perfume of worship really gets poured out, isn't it? The container, you see, couldn't be resealed to save some of the perfume for another occasion. The neck had to be broken, and all the perfume, this expensive perfume, was poured on Jesus in the most extravagant expression of her love and adoration. And it wasn't done in private. It was done in a setting, in a dinner party, where she wasn't even invited. In fact, you just wonder how welcome she would have been by some, but I'll tell you one person she was welcomed by, and that was Jesus. Because we're always welcome at the feet of Jesus. What a beautiful and yet challenging picture, I would suggest to you, of the kiss of true worship. Costly, unashamed, and breaking the cultural norm. I, I want to ask you a question. When did you, in the presence of other people, last break out of the norm of this house and express extravagant worship to Jesus? Why not today? Because we haven't finished yet. Psalm 2, the final section, verses 10 to 12, urges, be wise. Serve the Lord with fear, meaning with reverence, and kiss the Son, in submission to his kingship and with heartfelt worship of him. And finally, for the wise who make Jesus their king. Are there some wise people here this morning? I know there are. For the wise who make Jesus their king because of God's affection towards us as shown supremely in Christ dying in our place, we have a refuge like no other. The Amplified Version translates verse 12 in this way. Blessed, and two weeks ago Tom unpacked what it means to be blessed. Blessed are all those who seek refuge and put trust in him. The Lord's invitation today is quite simple. It's to be wise. To accept him as your propitiation to submit to him as your king, to serve him, worship him affectionately as if with a kiss and take refuge in him and be blessed. The death of Jesus, now to a cross of wood, the most painful death known to man seems foolish to those who don't believe, but what seems foolish to man the scripture tells us is the wisdom of God. 
As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, for those who believe Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom from God, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And so if you haven't accepted Christ as your Savior yet, I want to appeal to you today, be wise. Turn to him now and accept him as your propitiation for your sin. Submit to him as your king and determine to serve him for the remainder of your life. And join with us now as we kiss the Son, King Jesus, with our worship and bow at his feet. And if you today, for the first time, as the meeting has progressed, have decided, hey, you want to be wise and accept Jesus as your saviour, then please speak to Al or Debs or myself at the end of the meeting so that we can pray with you and seek to help you in the decision you have made. We sang earlier, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise and we poured it out heartily and that's right and proper. But in these moments now, following on from this incredible picture of the heart of intimate worship, it is time not for us to pour out our praise but to pour out our hearts in worship. And I felt the Holy Spirit lay on my heart a song that you may or may not know. It's not important because there are times when singing songs just need to just give way to responses to God. If you know it, by all means, join in. But really, it's the response to the message and the response to the words of the song that I believe are of most importance this morning. The song says, we fall down at the feet of Jesus. I know for some, some even in our life group, you'd love to be able to fall down at the feet of Jesus. The trouble is you can't get back up because of aches and pains. But I want to invite you, I want to appeal to you to respond to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you this morning in an appropriate way. It may be you stand and just offer your hands out as a, like a cup to be filled. It may be you feel you do want to kneel at the feet of Jesus, whatever. Maybe you just want to sit quietly, but actually sitting is not a common posture of worship in the scriptures. You might want to just stand and just bow. As we lay our earthly crowns at the feet of Jesus, I want to invite you, just as the Holy Spirit leads now, for us to respond to the scripture says if we draw near to him, he'll draw near to us. The veil has been torn as we were reminded during our praise and declaration times. We can come right in boldly. And it's not so much 
declaring how good he is. It's just telling him how much you love him. So just stand.